turn with me back in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. Tonight is one of those Sunday school stories that is so amazing you would not believe it. And it's one of those texts that seems so incredible, they're really practically unbelievable, and have you wondering how you could possibly apply the truths presented in this to our lives. And we know critics refuse to believe that this story and the events surrounding it were literally true. In fact, this whole chapter is problematic for those who do not believe in the supernatural. And many believers treat it just like a Sunday school story. It's a cute story, it's a wonderful story, but maybe it's relatively unimportant to us. But as we know about God's word, all of God's word is for our benefit. All of God's word is there for a reason, and all of it is for us to learn and to grow in our walk with Christ. Here now is this wonderful story of the ascension of Elijah into heaven. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep it quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elijah said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But... If you do not see, see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to him. 
and bowed to the ground before him. As we consider these words, God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Father, this is your word considering an historical event of great importance. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear this word, help us to apply it to our lives, help us to understand the wonderful, precious truths contained therein. Lord, we pray that all these things be done by the power of your spirit and not our own. Lord, whatever may be spoken here, thought here, said here, that is not consistent with your own word, let it pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you all probably know the modern ideas of a prophet. After all, there are those who claim to be prophets in our society around us. There are those who are given the acclamations of being prophets. And there are those who say, look, here is a prophet that is amongst us. And of course, the idea of prophets that seem to be the most prevalent is someone who predicts the future. And in fact, whether it's as a joke, as some people do, look, I said this way back then, and look, it, it has actually been fulfilled. Or whether it's someone who has tried to discern the times and has tried to look forward into the future to see what will happen as a result of the times and the attitudes and the philosophies and ideas of the day so that they can predict the future. That seems to be the current idea of what a prophet is. In fact, I remember as a kid when they started the sports television station ESPN one of the stars of the early shows called himself the Swami so that he could predict all the NFL football game scores of the week. And it was to predict the future based on his ideas and understanding of the players and teams in his day. In fact, we might say that prophets are considered educated prognosticators. Those who, with their wisdom and their insight and their study and research, can tell us what will happen in one year, five years, ten years, or thirty years down the road. We have those who will tell us the earth will end because of climate change. There are those who will tell us that a country will collapse because of certain indicators. There are those who will tell us of all kinds of different things that will happen in the future, and they call themselves prophets. But is this the kind of thing that Scripture calls a prophet? Well, the prophetic office was not just about predicting the future. If you study under my teaching and preaching for some time, you hear me repeatedly say the main job of the prophets is to give people God's word, and that part of that word was often not futuristic, but was the present call, repent. But the main thing about the prophetic office is this office is of the Lord. This prophetic office describes the Lord's power, and this prophetic office reminds us of the Lord's continuity. First of all, the prophetic office of the Lord. Here is Elijah and Elisha and schools of prophets. In fact, it's interesting, in this particular passage, I was reminded by one commentator as I read this passage, everybody seemed to know what was going to happen. It wasn't a surprise. It says right there in verse 1, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah knew it, Elisha knew it, all the prophets,
prophets from Jericho knew it. All the prophets from uh, all of these places that they went from one place to another seemed to know about it. And yet, in their tension and in their understanding, they didn't want to talk about it too much, did they? Everybody knew. But notice how it's described here. Elisha and Elijah were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. You see, this is the life of the prophet in Old Testament times. He is sent by the Lord. In the New Testament, we get the idea of being sent by the word apostle, someone who is sent out. Here in the Old Testament, it's the same thing. They may be called prophets, but they were sent by God to give the people God's word. So Elijah's life up to this point had been a series of being sent from one place to another, sent to the king, sent off into the wilderness, sent up to a mountain, sent here, sent there, sent everywhere. He was going where God called him to go. In fact, some of the well-known prophets of the Old Testament included Abraham and Moses and here Elijah and then Elisha. All of them were sent by the Lord as were the uh, other prophets, Isaiah, Jonah, all the rest, they're sent by the Lord. They're not there of their own calling, their own idea. But notice, too, what takes place when Elijah says to Elisha, remember, they're both one is a prophet that's departing, the other has been anointed prophet. We'll get to that in a little bit. But Elijah tells his servant here, please stay here. For the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha says this, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Now notice Elisha's words here. Obviously, he doesn't want to leave Elijah's side. He knows what's going on. And he says, As the Lord lives. Now this oath is given throughout Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. It was an oath not on uh, some worldly phenomenon, not on some human in invention, but upon the living God himself. It is an oath that he is making to say, I will not leave you, in this case, as long as you live. This is Elisha's commitment to his master Elijah and he recognizes that this is under the impression of the Lord's living. You see, God is the God of the living, not the dead. He is a living God, not an idol. And it says, as long as God is alive, as long as the Lord, the covenant God of Israel is alive, I will commit myself to you as long as he's living and as long as you, Elijah, are alive as well. Again, this is the prophetic office of the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, the covenant God of Israel. Then it tells us they went down to Bethel. And you get the idea of this story. Here they are in Gilgal. They go to Bethel. In Bethel first, the prophets of the school of the prophets in Bethel, kind of an interesting notation. We don't talk about that too much in our studies. Evidently, Elijah probably in particular was instrumental in starting these schools of prophets and they were in different places throughout Israel, and probably Judah as well. And they went to each of those, first of all Bethel, which means the house of God. And he comes there, 
And the prophets come out and say to Elisha, don't you know today that the Lord will take away your master from over you? Of course, Elisha already knows. We know that. Then the same thing happens. It's almost exactly the same. Elijah says to Elisha, now God is sending me off to Jericho so they can get to Jericho. He once again tells Elisha, hey, stay here. I'm about to go. And here again. Elisha says, I'm going to stay with you. As long as the Lord is alive, as long as you are living, by God's permission, I will stay stay with you. And the prophets at the school in Jericho come out to Elisha and say the same thing to him. This is kind of a repetitive story. I know that. And so here he goes on. And then, of course, they come to the Jordan. Verse 6, Elijah says to him the same thing, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And Elisha gives his oath again, the two of them go on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets, not just some of them, uh, but fifty men go out and they watch what takes place. Now this reminds us, these prophets were not only sent by the Lord, they not only had in their vocabulary that it's the, Lord, the living God of Israel that directs their lives, but their life events are scheduled by the Lord. In fact, we know this in part because of the symbolism that takes place in the geographical locations that are mentioned here. You see, what is happening here is they're retracing the history of Israel and where God is sending them. Notice what takes place. They're first at Gilgal. This is the place where the people were circumcised and they were about to enter the promised land or they had just crossed over into the promised land and were being dedicated and set apart for the purpose of their conquering the land. Some commentators think this is a different Gilgal than that one, but I tend to think this is probably the correct Gilgal. Secondly, they go to Bethel. Of course, this is a location well known in the history of God's people. This is where Jacob had a dream. And in his dream, he realized for the first time that God was not just where his father was. God was everywhere. God was with him in this place. He named it the house of God. And this is illustrative of the beginning of the conquering of the land. And then, of course, they come to Jericho. We know the importance of that city in the conquering of the land of Canaan. This was a city where they marched around seven times, and on the seventh time, on the seventh day of marching, they shouted and blew the trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down, and God's power was displayed in the destruction of that great city, and of course, then back to the Jordan. And at the Jordan, a reminder, this is where they crossed into the promised land. So this geographical symbolism is symbolizing how God was sending his people from one place to another, not so that they could just see the acts of God, but so they could see display the power of God in his leading them to conquer the promised land. And yet in all of this, these events that have been scheduled are to encourage us to understand prophetic succession. If you know your history, you know that in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, was the place where Elijah was to anoint three individuals. One was the the new king to be in Syria. The second was Jehu, the king who was supposed to be taking over in Israel. And the third was Elisha, 
who was to take Elijah's place. So in chapter 19, we have him anointing Elisha, and now Elijah realizes he's about to depart. Elisha knows the circumstances. All the prophets know what is taking place, and yet this is the scheduled event of God who has revealed to them these things. So in a sense, here in this geographical symbolism, in this prophetic succession, and the reenactment, in a sense, of Canaanite conquest, we see that this prophet, or this office of prophet, is of the Lord. It's not of man, it's of the Lord. I have to say, we don't, we, I don't know about you, I can't remember a time when a messenger came to our house. You know, it used to be that messengers would come and come to your house and knock on the door, give you a telegram or whatever it might be, but that's long past, isn't it? Now we all have electronic devices, we get email and texts and phone calls and all those types of things. But imagine you live in a world where you get messengers. Perhaps one of the most uh, telling cultural ideas of this might be in the, in the musical Sound of Music. In the musical Sound of Music, there's a young man that's infatuated with the daughter of the main star's family. And here... He has gone over to become a part of the Austrian Reich. His name is Rolf. There's even a song of the love and romance between this guy who becomes a messenger and the daughter of the main character. But he comes to the house to deliver a message. And of course, if you know the history of the message was because the main character had been involved in the Austrian military before the, the Nazi Germany had taken over, they wanted him to serve in the military again, but he didn't want to, and so he wanted to escape that particular call. But this messenger, this messenger came, and this messenger had no power of his own. He was a kid, a teenager. He was someone who wanted the hand of this guy's daughter, but he represented the Austrian Reich of the German government. It was not this person's message. It was the message of those who sent him and the authority imbued in them. This is the prophetic office. This isn't Elijah's office. It's not Elisha's office. It's not even Israel's office. It is the office of the Lord, the God of Israel. In fact, 2 Peter 1.21 reminds us about prophecy. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the prophetic office is one that tells us the word of God. When we read the scriptures and we read the prophetic accounts and we read the history of what has taken place in Israel, we understand that this is the word handed down to us through God's servants, the prophets, and the apostles. It is the Lord's office. But it is also an office that displays his power. Here's what takes place. They finally come to the Jordan. They go down from Gilgal to Bethel uh, to Jericho. Then they come to the Jordan. Of course, this is the river. It says, Elijah does. He says, ask what I shall do for you, this is verse 9, before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. 
Now, of course, we know I don't have it listed in your outline, but we know that the power of this prophetic office was also displayed in the fact that Elijah could uh, make his cloak strike the river and the waters parted and they walked across on dry land. Again, this reenactment of Canaanite conquest described in these particular verses. But here this request that Elisha gives is this. He basically says, I want a double portion of your spirit upon me. Now, you might wonder, what in the world does that mean? And, of course, I did when I read this the first time. What does it mean to have a double portion of Elijah's spirit? Well, first of all, I want you to know this is an impossible request, at least for Elijah to grant. Elijah can't say, okay, here's a double portion of my spirit, and you can have fries to go with that. No, he doesn't say that. He can't do that. He can't place upon Elisha a double portion of his spirit. For one thing, he only has one portion of his spirit. For another thing, it's not his to grant. It's an impossible request for a prophet to fulfill. But what is this double portion of Elijah's spirit? Now, there are those who would say that perhaps this means that yeah, he would be more powerful than Elijah. And we know in Scripture, Elisha actually, uh, in Scripture records, uh, did more powerful and more in number miracles than Elijah did. Some people would say that it means that his influence on the society around him would be greater, or that his faithfulness would be greater, or that his prayers, remember, Elijah was a man of prayer, that's where we get the scripture passage in the New Testament, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Maybe his prayers would be more effective. But it seems to be, because of the language given in the Hebrew, that this double portion of Elijah's spirit is referring to the inheritance of a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, we read about the double inheritance of the firstborn son. And the exact same phrase of this double inheritance or double portion is a phrase that's used here in this particular passage. And you'll notice here, Elisha calls Elijah his father. So what he's asking for is the inheritance of this prophetic office as the primary or foremost prophet in Israel. He's asking for the ability to carry out that task that he has been anointed already by God's design through the hand of Elijah to do. In some sense, this is like Solomon asking for wisdom in his kingdom. This is Elijah or Elisha asking for the inheritance of the prophetic office to carry out his duties as a prophet. But notice Elijah's response. He says, you've asked a hard thing. Of course, it's impossible for him to grant. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. What kind of response is that? He says, if you see me, it will happen. If you don't see me, it won't happen. In other words, Elijah is saying, I really can't give that to you. I don't have anything to do with this. This is completely up to divine conditions for the granting of this wish. In other words, if God permits you by giving you eyes to see, keeping your eyes open and not having you miss this event, if God's design is this to, for this to happen for you and you see this event, it will be given you. 
But if it's not God's design, he closes your eyes, or you miss it somehow, then this is not God's design in your life. In other words, Elijah does not have the power of his own ability to grant this wish to Elisha. But Elijah knows that God's control of this office is such that he may very well grant this desire in Elijah's life. But it's not just an impossible request. Of course, this is a story we all remember from our Sunday school days. This incredible event. Here they are, if you want to ask the trivia question, how was Elijah taken up into heaven? And if you answer by fiery chariots and horsemen, you're dead wrong. He was carried up by a whirlwind or a stormy gale. The fiery chariots and horses separated. This was separation by these things. And this event, because Elisha was not invited to go up to heaven at this particular point in time, Elijah was separated from Elisha by these fiery chariots and horses. And the ascension of Elijah was by a whirlwind, a gale, or a storm. We wonder, this is just bizarre. Here it is, one of the only times in the Old Testament where someone didn't die. We can think of Enoch. Here we think of Elijah. But we also know that this ascension by the whirlwind was very appropriate for the office. In fact, you may not have realized that God speaks out of a whirlwind, Scripture tells us, to Job in chapter 38 and chapter 40. It tells us that he speaks out of a whirlwind to the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Zechariah, both of them. In other words, there's some idea of God speaking from the power of a storm. We also know that God spoke in a whisper to Elijah. But this incredible event is not about Elijah. It's about God. And the illustrative exclamation here of Elijah kind of tells it all. He looks at the two chariots and he sees Elijah taken up in this whirlwind into heaven. And he cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What does this refer to? See, he's not just talking about the, the literal vision he saw of these fiery chariots and horses. He's talking about the true defense of Israel. You know what has taken place in history by this point. In the very first chapter, what took place? Fifty men would come up with their captain to Elijah to arrest him and take him to King Azariah because Azariah wanted rid of him. And yet, Elijah could call fire down from heaven to destroy fifty men. God, God sent fire down from heaven on the mountain to defeat 850 false prophets on Mount Carmel. The true defense of Israel was not in their military, was not in their power and their might, but was represented by the prophetic office because God gave authority through the prophets to conquer kingdoms. It's also this true spiritual depth of Israel. As we understand the idea of father here, Elisha recognized not just that Elijah was meaningful to him and was an important figure for him, but in one sense he was a father to his son as he was teaching and training Elisha the things of God in the prophetic office. This exclamation reminded all the people who read this account 
This is about the power of God given through this offering. Now, you know, my son Micah is over training at boot camp, basic training in Columbia, South Carolina. And you know what they do in boot camp. There's a lot of physical training. There's running. There's lifting. We were reminded on a phone call today that, that he has constantly strapped on his back about five pounds worth of water so that he's hydrated all the time. He's learning how to shoot, how to do all kinds of different things of defense and learning how to display these things for the Army. But is it this that will save our country? Is it this power of our troops and our tanks and our ammunition and our wisdom and all of our training and military arts that will protect and save our country? No. Only God can do that. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, we read, Some trust in chariots and some in forces, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Even if my son Micah were to become a super soldier and be the most trained and the most effective in all of the army, he does not have the power to defend his people like God can. You see, the prophetic office displays the Lord's power, but it also displays his continuity. Elisha has explained this statement. It says he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, it says, and he tore them in pieces. He took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to one side or the other, and Elijah went over. What about this robe of Elijah, Elijah that was, had fallen? You know, did Elijah need earthly clothes when he went up into heaven? Evidently, he didn't need this robe. It's a reminder in one sense of the staff of Moses. For Elijah, it was this robe or this cloak that he would use. He struck the Jordan. He used it on other occasions. Here with Moses, it was always a staff. The staff could turn into a serpent at God's command. The staff would display God's power. But it was also a reminder of the glory of translation. Translation not as in English into the Greek or Hebrew, but translation as in our bodies translated to glory. He didn't need that robe anymore. Now he had a new robe, a robe of righteousness to put on himself. This robe displayed the power of God in illustrating God's call to office. But here this robe of Elijah reminds us that it does not matter whether or not one era has ended or begun, whether or not one servant has gone or stayed, God's power remains. God's power in that robe, in that circumstance, God's use of that robe was not just in the hands of Elijah who owned the robe, it also continued into the hands of Elijah. And notice too what it says in verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. In other words, they were witnesses to testify to the fact that Elisha had been granted the double portion or the inheritance of the prophets from Elijah, the spirit of Elijah upon him. But you see, this is not about Elijah or Elisha. 
this is about the God of Elijah. He never left. He never left. When Elijah went up into heaven, he didn't abandon Israel. He was calling the new prophet. And he endures, as I've already mentioned, he endures beyond eras. If we were to look back at the days of Joshua and the description of the Israelites going into the promised land over the river Jordan, that time period or era is known as the Bronze Age. And God was powerful in the Bronze Age. We saw all kinds of things that took place. He provided for food and water for them in the desert. He provided for them to defeat enemies that they could not normally withstand. He did amazing and powerful things. But the people of Elijah's day, who lived in the Iron Age, could not look back on that and say, well, that was a different time and a different place. God worked in different ways in those times. No, God worked the same. He, too, could part the waters of the Jordan in their day. He, too, could do amazing and powerful things in their day, and he would. Elisha would be involved in raising the dead, in making water clean, in doing all kinds of powerful miracles. God endures in his power beyond eras. It's also beyond his influence. When Elijah was gone, Elisha came. When one man of God disappears or is now dead, God presents another on the horizon to take his place. Why do I say this? I agree with those who might say this passage reminds us there is a constant refrain throughout the decades, maybe even the centuries. We hear it today. Times are different now. God may have worked that way way back then. But you know, today we know better, we're more enlightened. We know that that might be legend back then. They were just saying those things to make and encourage the people to follow God. That's, that's what people will say. Times are different now. God doesn't work in the same ways. And yet Hebrews 13.8 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Did God still do miracles? Yes, absolutely. The greatest miracle he does in the life of any individual is turning them to the Lord Jesus Christ and transforming their life. You see, the prophetic office was never about the prophet. It wasn't about Elijah and Elisha. It wasn't even about Moses and Elijah. Perhaps the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, the two men that appeared with Jesus on the mount where he was transfigured before the apostles. It wasn't even about them. Both could not even be reverenced at the grave. Moses was buried by God. Nobody knew where his grave was. Elijah didn't even die. There isn't a tombstone or a grave to mark where his body lay. We cannot go to them and say, look, here's how wonderful they were. We don't know where their bodies are. Well, we know where they are now up in heaven. But the prophetic office was always about the God of our salvation. The prophetic office was always about the God of judgment. And the prophetic office was always about the God of when you read this passage, don't just be amazed at the story and wonder at the elements contained therein. Be reminded that this is about the God who loves his people and will do whatever it takes through whatever servants will be available to carry out his word and purpose to save his people. God is in control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that despite the amazing 
things that are portrayed in this passage, even things that, that can seem hard to believe. Yet you display your power and your grace over and over again. We thank you for including this, Lord, that we might be encouraged by your commitment to us and that you will never leave nor 